as you're seated, if you have your Bible, go ahead and take it out. And this morning we are going to be in the book of Luke. So we're not going to be in our normal spot in the book of Luke as we study the book of Luke on Sunday mornings, but we're going to be a little bit earlier in Luke. So turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at a passage of scripture there this morning as we get ready to kind of journey together for 21 days through prayer and fasting as a church. So that's what we're going to do in just a second. But before we do that, I want us to quote our memory verses as a church. We are memorizing scripture together and we are memorizing the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And this week, we were up to verses 31 and 32 of Matthew chapter 5. So hopefully you've been memorizing scripture. So every week, we're just going to quote that together so you can have an opportunity to do that. And it's also an opportunity to hold you accountable to memorizing scripture. So this morning, we're going to do verses 31 and 32. So are you ready? Somebody's ready. Is everybody ready? Hopefully everybody's ready. Well, I'm going to say it and you're going to say it with me, right? Yeah, one person is. Okay, you're going to say it with me as we quote Scripture together. So Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. This is what the Bible says. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say a man that divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery also. Okay. So there were a few more scattered out that quoted that. So next week, as we kind of get together on a new year, and especially as we're praying and fasting together, hopefully part of your prayer and fasting will be to memorize the Word of God. So next week will be, of course, in verses 33 and 34, just two verses a week. We're memorizing together and quoting together. So memorize that Scripture so we can quote it together as we journey through God's word together. So this morning, of course, we are starting a 21-day fast. And I know some of you are already hungry. Amen? Yeah, I know you are. you got to tell me. I hear your stomach growling. But we are probably already hungry. And guess what? You're going to be hungry for a few days. That is just life. But as we go through this together and as we hunger together, my hope and my prayer is that hunger, that physical hunger, forces us to hunger after God. And that's what the desire of this fast is for your life as followers of Jesus Christ and for our life as a church. But as we begin this morning, I just want to answer a few questions. I've gotten a lot of questions about fasting this week. And especially the fast we're doing, the Daniel fast is what we're doing together as a church. One question I got this week, I won't tell you who asked me this question, but this was the question. If I can get it in a blender and liquefy it, can I have it? And this is what he asked me. He said, if I can put a steak in a blender and I can get it to liquid form, is that okay on the fast? No, that's not okay on the fast. Just because you can liquefy it does not mean it's okay. So what we're doing, of course, the Daniel fast, I'll talk about that in a minute, but you can't eat meat on the Daniel fast or dairy or anything from animals. So no, just because it's liquid doesn't mean it's good for the fast. But probably the most, I guess the most asked question that I've gotten the whole week is this, and this probably says a lot about you as a church. Can I drink coffee on this fast? Can I drink coffee on the fast? And everybody wants to know, can I drink coffee on the fast? So let me answer that question, okay? So, of course, the the Daniel diet comes from Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 10. And that's what we're doing as a church because we're doing a little bit longer fast, 21 days. I know it's hard to go 21 days without food. So in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is there. He and the three Hebrew boys have been taken to Babylon from Jerusalem. And they're living in the king's palace. And they're eating from the king's table. But Daniel said, I can't eat from the king's table because it contains food God told me not to eat. 
So he asked the guy in charge, the guard over them, he says, hey, can I just eat vegetables and drink water? And will you test us, the, him and the three boys, and see if we're okay and better at the end of the fast than the ones who are eating from the king's table? And the guard said, well, I don't know about that, but he agreed to it. And at the end of that, they were sharper and brighter than all the ones who had been eating from the king's table. And God used that and honored that. And he put them in positions of power in Babylon and used them literally all their life for influence there in another land. So the word there that's translated in our Bible for vegetable is not really the word vegetable. In Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word zeroim. And the word there means from seed. That's what the word means. So really on the Daniel fast, what we're doing, you can eat anything from seed. So you can have fruits, you can have vegetables, you can have beans, you can have nuts, anything from seed. So guess where coffee comes from? It comes from what? A coffee bean. So is a bean from seed? Yeah, it is. Okay, y'all didn't study very well in science, did you? A bean is from seed, okay? So I don't care if you have coffee. If you want to have coffee, drink coffee. But here's the problem. You can't go to Starbucks and get a caramel macchiato, okay? It's all the garbage you put in the coffee is what makes the coffee bad. So if you want coffee, you got to drink black coffee. Not sugared up, not with cream and all the junk you put in there. So drink black coffee, do your heart's content. But just drink black coffee. So maybe that'll help your marriage out and your spouse will be nicer to you in the morning. Maybe you'll be nicer to us on Sunday mornings. I don't know. But I guess it's okay to drink coffee, even tea. Tea comes from a leaf, a plant. So if you need to drink coffee, drink coffee. But of course, the reason we're fasting, I've told you this a lot as we've talked about fasting. Fasting is just denying the flesh so that we can feed our spirit. That's all it is. We're trying to feed our spirit and connect our spirit with the spirit of God. So we're in one with him. We're in tune with him. We hear his voice and he works and he flows through us. That's fasting. And when we hunger physically, that should cause us to think in our mind, oh, I should be hungering after God and I should be seeking after God. And it should lead you to prayer. It should lead you to worship. It should lead you to seeking him. If the only thing you're doing the next 21 days is fasting and you're not combining that with prayer and worship and seeking, then all you're doing is a diet. That's it. And it's useless. So don't do it. So we fast to deny this, to feed the spirit within us. So that's why we're fasting. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Of course, the verse that I'm praying for you and our church this year, James 4, 8, says there, draw near to God and then he will draw near to you. But it starts with us. The imperative there is for us, for us to draw near to God. Then God will meet us. But we have to draw near to him. We initiate that. And so when we do that, God will meet us where we are and he will use it in your life. Now, I'm not going to tell you it's going to be easy because it's not easy and you will be hungry and you'll be really hungry probably for the next three days. But once you kind of get past that and you break through, then God will just meet you and he will begin to speak to you. And I promise it will not only change your life, it will change the life of this church. You will just be faithful to his word. God is always faithful to do what he says. So draw near to God and God will draw near to you. So this morning, in just a moment, we're going to look there in Luke chapter four. But I want to kind of tell you. Why, for me anyway, I believe God is calling us as a church to fast. Why God is calling you as a follower, me as a follower, to fast. Why fasting? Why is fasting in God's word? Why is that one of the primary ways that we meet him and we seek him with all of our hearts? Why fasting? And for me anyway, one thing I can remember vividly in my life is I can remember the day that I was saved. And I can take you to the exact place I was sitting in the sanctuary. It was the revival service at our church. 
I can take you to the exact place I was sitting, the exact place I knelt and prayed at the altar, because that day when I was 13, God just spoke into my life and he revealed to me sin and he revealed to me what my sin has done. And it has made me helpless and hopeless. And I was separated from God and I needed him. So on that day, I called out to the Lord Jesus to save me. And he did. And the burdens was lifted off my shoulder and I felt peace and joy. And it was incredible. I can remember it vividly. But there's something else I can remember vividly. And it wasn't the day of my salvation, but it was about a week or two later. I can remember in the mail at my house anyway, I got a box of envelopes and it was about this thick. And it was a box of tithing envelopes. Does anybody remember tithing envelopes when you were growing up? Nobody got tithing envelopes? Okay, you remember tithing envelopes. And of course, tithing envelope had a number on it corresponding with your name so the church could keep a record of how much you were giving. And back then, they gave you enough envelopes for every week. So there were a bunch of envelopes in this box. And I can remember getting this box of envelopes and taking it out and looking at it. And it wasn't just a tithing envelope back then because on this envelope, it had all these check boxes that you could check. One of them was, did you read your Bible this week? One of them was, did you go to Sunday school this week? One of them was, did you share the gospel this week? One of them was, did you pray this week? And then another one, you'll remember this if you ever went to Southern Baptist Church. Did you read your quarterly this week? Does anybody remember a quarterly? That was your Sunday school book. So I remember all these check boxes. And then there was a place where you could stick your money and write the amount that you were giving that week. And so for me anyway, as a 13-year-old kid, I really didn't know all that it meant. But here's what it implied to me. And here's what it implied to everybody, by the way. It implied that Christianity was just a box to check. Right? Christianity was about me reading my Bible. It was about me giving a tithe. It was about me tearing the gospel. It was about me going to Sunday school. It was about these boxes to check. And if I checked the box and I did all the things I was supposed to do, I was going to be all right. So as a 13-year-old kid, I started trying to live the Christian life. And I tried hard to live the Christian life. But guess what? I failed. Why? Because it was about me. It was about I. It was about the things I was doing. I was checking the box. I was doing this. And I would come to church week after week after week, and I would see people that I thought would had it all together, and it discouraged me because I was like, well, why can they do it and I can't? And so I struggled through high school just feeling like a failure. And then I got to my senior year in high school when I was 17. And I can take you back to the same place in the sanctuary where I was sitting. And I remember God just speaking into my heart. And he started telling me, John, I want you to go into ministry. I want you to preach the gospel. And in my heart, I was like, I can't do that. Again, I. And so I said, no, God, I'm not going to do that. I cannot do that. So no thanks. And so I didn't tell a soul about that, and I started doing my own thing. I always wanted to go into medicine, so I went to UAB, started school, and I was just following what I thought I wanted to do with my life. But I was miserable, I mean dog-dead miserable, for two years of my life. As I walked away from God, as I ran from God, I was just in misery. And I can remember in my bedroom one night, I knelt down, I said, God, I'm tired, I can't do it anymore, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, I'll preach, I'll go to ministry, missions, whatever it is. And I can remember the burden just lifted off of me, almost like the day I was saved, and I just felt joy and peace, and I thought in my mind, that's what it was. That's why I was failing, that's why I was struggling, just because I wasn't in obedience to God and His calling in my life. And I thought everything was going to be good, but then I kept walking the Christian life, and I kept struggling. I went to seminary, I got a job at a church, I was on staff, and I was working full-time, going to school full-time. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm still struggling, I'm still failing. And I thought, well, if I can just get out of school, it'll be okay. Then I got out of school. 
and it wasn't okay. Kept going to church. I was growing in my walk at that time. But it seemed like almost every week we would have a commitment. We would have a time to rededicate your life. We would have a revival. And I would hear somebody speak. And over and over again, I was just, that was it, God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And again, who was it about? Me, I, I, me, me, me. And every week I struggled walking the Christian walk. Eventually I came to a place in my life where I remember at 17, God said, John, you're to preach. And so maybe I'm supposed to be preaching. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. So I went to my first church and I pastored that church and I was preaching week after week after week. And the church was doing great. The church was growing. It doubled in size in just a couple of years. And the one thing I learned about a Southern Baptist church in the South is not everybody's happy when a church starts to grow. A lot of people weren't happy about it, by the way. And so there's a group in this church and they didn't like me. They hated me, in fact. And so they started getting together and meeting in homes, trying to figure a way they could get rid of me. And they know they couldn't fire me because the church had grown so much and they weren't going to fire me. So they started to come up with ways that they could make my life miserable and make my family's life miserable. And hopefully that would make me leave the church. And guess what? I was miserable. It was awful. They told lies about me, horrible lies about me that were untrue. It was awful. And I can remember one day just being broken and thinking to myself, God, I have moved all the way from my home, almost 10 hours away. I've done everything you've told me to do. The church is growing. People are being saved. We're around the world sharing the gospel. What more can I do? And God spoke to me. And this is all he said. He said, John, I don't want you to do anything. That's all he said. No, that's it. Nothing. I don't want you to do anything. And I thought, well, if you don't want me to do anything, why am I here? I don't want to be here. And so about that time, I was reading my Bible. And I was in the Gospels, and I was in Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is light and my burden is easy. Well, there was nothing in my life that was easy. In fact, it was hard. And the burden I was carrying was heavy. It was not light. And there was nothing in my life that was restful. It was work. And so I kept struggling. God, what do you want? God, what do you want from me? I'm tired. And I came to a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 4. And it's really a very simple passage of Scripture. It's Jesus early on in His ministry. And if you read of all of Luke 4, it's kind of amazing the things that Jesus was doing. In one part of Luke chapter 4, it says they were bringing all who were sick and had disease and they were bringing them to Jesus and just the touch of His hand would heal them. He was preaching, He was teaching, He was casting out demons. And guess what? Now crowds were following Him because His name spread everywhere. And everybody wanted to see what He was doing. They wanted to hear what He had to teach and they wanted to be healed if they had a disease. So they were coming. Crowds. Thousands. But then verse 42 says this. It says, early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowd searched everywhere for him. And when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave. 
They begged him not to leave. Now there are literally crowds, hundreds and thousands of people following Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ do? He didn't do what we would do. If we saw crowds, if we saw a need, what would we do? We would run to it, especially me as a preacher. If I see a crowd, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach. That's what I'm supposed to do. Not Jesus. What did he do? He went away from the crowd. He walked away from ministry. Why? To be alone with the Father. Now Luke doesn't tell us that, but if you read Mark 135, the exact same story, it tells us that early in the morning, Jesus went away to pray. So Jesus went to an isolated place. And he left the work. He left the ministry. And here was what God was saying to me when God said, John, I don't want you to do anything. He was telling me, John, I didn't call you to ministry. I called you to myself. I called you to a relationship. I called you to intimacy, not to work. You see, I had it backwards. I thought God called me to do something. Isn't that what we think about a calling? If God called you to be a doctor or a teacher or a pharmacist, whatever it is, God called you to do something, right? That's the way we think about it. But God doesn't call you to do something. God calls you to himself. That's what he calls you to do. He calls you to relationship. And that's why Jesus got alone in an isolated place to meet with the Father. See, we know a lot of things about Jesus. We know all the things the Bible tells us and all the things that we've been taught that he lived a sinless life, that he died on a cross, that he rose from the grave, and then you can be saved through him. But we really don't know a lot about Jesus because we don't take time to study Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus is God, 100% God. He's God in the what? Flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh. So when God became flesh in Jesus Christ, God had to limit himself with his flesh. He limited his divinity, his power, his divine nature. Why? So that he could live a sinless life as we do. Now, we can't live a sinless life, but we live. But he lived a sinless life and he had to be flesh to do that so that he could be a sacrifice for our sin and die on the cross and be raised from the dead so that we can be saved through Jesus Christ. So how did he do that if he was flesh? By getting alone in isolated places and having a relationship with the Father. That's how he did it. Why did he start his ministry with a 40-day fast? Why, before he called his disciples, did he spend the entire night praying? Why did he go to isolated places? Why did he get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake? Why did he do all that? Leaving the crowd, leaving the ministry time after time again to meet with the Father. That's why he did it. Because Jesus Christ understood what we do not. Jesus was called to a relationship with the Father. That's why he says over and over, I have come to do the will of who? My Father. But he had to hear the voice of his Father to know the heart of his Father. And so he would get alone with him and he would hear them. And then everything that he did in this life, everything that he did as he worked and healed and ministered, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not his own power. Acts 10, 38, go read it. And the only way that was possible was to understand that he was here for relationship, not ministry. 
See, Jesus came to this earth to fulfill what God put you and I here to fulfill in the beginning. Go back to Genesis. Why did God create Adam and Eve? Why did he create us? To have a relationship with us. That's why in Genesis chapter 3, God would come in the cool of the day and he would do what with Adam and Eve? He would walk with them and he would talk with them. What was Jesus doing in Luke chapter 4? He got away when? At daybreak, the cool of the day. And what was he doing with God? Walking with him and talking with him. He fulfilled what we were put on this earth to fulfill. And that's why he could do all the things he did. That's why he could work through the power of the Holy Spirit and see people healed just by touching them or speaking to them or someone touching the hem of his garment. That's why he taught with power. That's why he went to the cross and that's why he died and that's why he rose again. Because he got alone with God and walked with him and talked with him. And that's what you and I have been called to do. Jesus says himself, he just gave us an example to follow. And if we would follow his example, according to his own words, we would do the very same things he did. John 14, he says, anyone who believes in me will do the same things that I have done and even greater things because I'm going to be with the father. How many of us are doing greater things than Jesus Christ? None of us. Why? Because we run to the crowds. Rather than going to the isolated place. See, ministry is not about you doing something. Ministry is about Jesus Christ just doing something through you and flowing out of you. Ministry is just the overflow of your time with Jesus. Just overflow of your intimacy with God. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us in John 15. It's the story he tells about the vine and the branches. And of course, he says there, I am the vine and you are the branches. Most people read John 15. You know what they think it's all about? Bearing fruit. And what are Christians supposed to do in this life? How do we know that you're a Christian and you're not a Christian? By the fruit that you bear. Well, guess what you cannot do as a Christian? You cannot bear fruit. You can't do it. Think about a tree planted out in a field, an apple tree, maybe. What are those apples? What are the fruit hanging off the branches of that tree? It is just the life flowing through the the vines that is pushed out through the branches. Those branches don't do anything but hang there and the fruit just springs forth. How many trees have you seen out in a field that are just working hard to produce fruit? They're just gritting their teeth and they're pushing that fruit out. They don't do that. They can't do that. What is a tree's responsibility? For its roots to grow down deep, to sink down in, so that they can have life flowing up from out of them. And what happens when life flows through out of them? It springs forth. What is the duty of a Christian? To produce fruit? No. A duty of a Christian is to hang on to the vine. For your roots to grow down deep, so that life can spring forth and flow out of you. It's just the overflow of Jesus in you. Your time. Your intimacy. Your relationship with the Father. And that's why we fast. That's why we pray. To seek God with all our hearts. To get up and go to the isolated place and meet Him. So this morning, I just want you to hear a testimony about that. Julie's going to come. 
And back last spring at Easter time, we did a seven-day fast together as a church. During that seven-day fast, Julie fasted. I just want you to hear her story. So in the spring, the first time I had heard about the fast, I immediately knew that I was supposed to participate in it. So I began to pray that the Lord would prepare me, my spirit, my body. But then I did, did what I tend to do, if you know me, and I started to research things. I love to read up on things, to learn about how things work, gain more knowledge. And in doing so, I determined that since I had never fasted before, it would be better and safer for me to fast like with liquids for the first three days and then to start adding back in food, like maybe uh, Daniel fast type foods. <clears throat> and I felt really confident about that. I prayed about it. But looking back, my prayer was more or less, you know, God, this is what I've decided I'm going to do. And if you want me to do something different, then you just let me know. And then I plugged my ears up and I didn't listen anymore. So here I go, starting out with a fast. And um, the first few days, I mean, y'all, most of you did it too. So by Wednesday, I was, it was a little bit of a struggle. Like, I'm hungry. And um, on Wednesday nights, the praise band members who do not have other commitments, we meet and we practice and we do vocals and stuff, but we always tend to talk quite a bit. And um, so that night we were talking about the fast. And I don't remember exactly what was said, but I remember at that moment, I realized that I didn't really understand why I was fasting. It was definitely not obedience to God. It was more or less that I trusted our pastor, that he had called our church to fast, and it's biblical, so why wouldn't I do it? But it was kind of more of like a duty. There wasn't anything deeper for me behind of it. So, and I expressed that in while we were talking. And so really early Thursday morning, the Lord woke me up with very strong conviction. You know, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're not really sure, like, should I get up and pray or whatever? And I was like, there was no doubt about it. I needed to get up. And so I grabbed my Bible and I went upstairs because everyone else was still asleep. And I began to pray. And the Lord convicted me so strongly, first of all, for my discouraging talk um, that I had absolutely no intention of doing. But looking back, there was nothing edifying about it at all. And so he convicted me about that. And then he also started to kind of lay me bare as far as um, some sin in my life. Years before, um, when we were going through something, not within our marriage, but together, um, Eric made a comment to me that um, I had faith like a child and that, you know, he admired that. And I never consciously held on to that. And, you know, I, it, I remember it made me feel good. And I was like, oh, that's great. But um, I realized that I had kind of become puffed up and proud about that. I kind of identified myself as like I'm somebody with great faith. And when I was upstairs on my knees praying, the Lord was like, Julie, you think you've got great faith. But when it comes to your body and health and healing, your faith is in all the stuff that you read. It's in the facts and the science and the, stati the statistics. If I've called you, I created you from nothing. So if I've called you to fast for a week, do you not think that I can sustain you for that amount of time? Do you not think that I can help you break the fast 
safely because that was one of my concerns as well. And in that time, he continued to reveal more sinful attitudes that I had, things that I had completely blinded myself to, and it was not pretty. But it was beautiful because I did not feel condemnation. And as I repented, I was overwhelmed with his love and his forgiveness. And I cannot explain to you how sweet it was. And he let let me know really quick that I was supposed to finish the fast the way that I started it, like with no food or anything. And he got me through it. And I can tell you that the second half of my fast was completely different than the first half because I stopped trying to control everything. And I got out of the way and let the Lord work in my life. And the closer walk, that closer walk with Christ did not end with the fast. Um, I definitely had a mountaintop moment, and Pastor John talked about that during the last fast, that you may have that. And I no doubt did. I was like on a spiritual high starting that Thursday morning all the way through. But I know that he's faithful to his promise. When we draw near to him, he will draw near to you, even if he chooses to use a still, small voice instead of like he did me, kind of whack me over the head. So about two weeks after the fast, I had a bit of a health crisis, I guess you would say. And there was a lot of uncertainty and fear on my part, um, pain, and overall just deteriorated health. And the Lord let me know, even in that, I had pride in my health. I'd never really had anything serious or major And I was so disappointed in my body as if it was something that I was in control of to begin with. And I I absolutely believe that we should be good stewards of our body and take care of ourselves. But sometimes things are out of our control. And that's another issue I have. I wasn't in control of it. And I was just so disappointed. But God, who is ever present, he whispered to me the same way that he did during the fast. And that was, I created you from nothing. And if I have called you to this, do not think that I can sustain you. What or who is your faith going to be in? Are you going to dig in and you're going to read what all the statistics would be and what science says this might could be and scare yourself half to death? Are you going to trust me that I'm sovereign and that I'm in control? So during this journey, I didn't know what was going to happen, but... He absolutely assured me that he was with me every step of the way and that he was working for my good and for his glory no matter what the outcome was. He went before me. Um, I absolutely know that he was preparing me during the fast. He was preparing my spirit. He was preparing me in my relationship with him. At the beginning of the year, he went before me and how he led me to start reading through the Old Testament. I'd never just, I'd finished the New Testament just straight through. I'd never done the Old Testament from beginning to end. And so right in the middle of all of this, I was in the Psalms and I didn't have a reading plan. I was just kind of reading whatever I felt like the Lord was leading me to. And it was like every day the Psalms that I would read were like handpicked, perfect for what I was dealing with, what I was going through. And there was a whole bunch of other things. You can ask my family, different ways that, you know, I would be trying to fix something or just be in control of things. And when I would finally give it over to him, he would work things out in a way that was just like, 
let go. Let me be in charge. Stop trying to control everything. Um, he surrounded me with people that prayed for me so much. My family, um, this church staff, and their precious wives prayed over me. I had friends that I was able to call and pray on that I knew would be on their knees praying for me. And through all of that, I knew I wasn't alone. I felt probably the most loved and cared for than I ever have in my life. And jump ahead, I am, I'm okay now. My body has not been completely restored yet. But God in his mercy used the miracle and the gift of modern medicine to allow me to be able to function the way that I did before. And I'm so incredibly thankful for that. And to be honest, if complete restoration of my body took me back spiritually to where I was before, then I don't want that. Fasting was an unexpected gift. And it wasn't easy, as many of y'all know. But his grace is sufficient for his power. It's made perfect in weakness. So to end, I just want to say, don't be stubborn like me. If you haven't thought about the fast, if you're not sure if you can get through with it, just get out of the way and seek him and trust him because he is faithful to all of his promises. Amen. Amen. Well, that's why we're fasting. More importantly, that's why we're praying. Because again, if you do this fast and you don't pray and you don't seek God, you're wasting your time. I'm going to encourage you to get along with God. Over the next 21 days, do what Jesus Christ did in Luke 4. Early in the morning, in the cool of the day, get alone and walk and talk with God. And when you do that, you probably need to do something different than you normally do. First thing you need to do when you get alone, and you need to get alone. I'm just telling you, you can't do this driving to work. You can't do it because you're not alone. Even if nobody's in the car, you're not alone. And you are distracted. You need to get alone with God. And the first thing you need to do when you get alone with God is you just need to be quiet. You just need to shut up. You don't have to say a thing. God does not need to hear from you. You need to hear from God. And most of the time when we pray, we spend way too much time talking and not enough time listening. So just be quiet. Quieten your spirit. And I don't know how long that's going to take for you. But here's a good way to know. Have a pen and a notepad. And just sit there until God says something to you. And it might not be profound. But just sit there until God says something to you. Whatever he says, just write it down. He's not going to shout it. He's going to speak it in a still, small whisper. That's how he speaks. He doesn't speak in a crowd. He wants to meet with you alone. So when he speaks, write it down. And then take his word. Take the Bible. And just read it. And you don't have to read it for an hour, two hours. Just for... 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is, just read God's word. And I would encourage you over the next 21 days, read from the New Testament. And when God speaks to you through his word, whenever it is in that time, 
Write it down again. Because I'm telling you, at some point in that 21 days or sometime in your life, you're going to need the word that God spoke to you. And if you write it down, you'll remember it. If you don't write it down, guess what? If you're like me, you ain't going to remember it. So write it down. Then when he speaks to you in his word, just take a moment to praise him. He's worthy of our praise, our adoration, our thanksgiving. Sing to him, praise him, worship him. That's how we meet with God, through worship. Then pray. Just pray. Confess your sins before God. Get right before God. If you ask Him, God, what is between you and me? What sins are hindering my prayers or hindering my walk? He will reveal sin. He is faithful to do that, I promise. And then just confess it. Get rid of it. Lord, I'm sorry. And then when you confess your sin, then start praying. Pray for other people first. Don't pray for yourself. Intercede for them. Then you can pray for you, your family, whatever needs you have. And I would end it again. Just by being still and quiet before God. End your prayer time the same way you started by saying nothing. Waiting for God to speak to you. And if he says something, write it down again. Journal that, keep that, because that one day will become precious to you. Word of God for you is a word for no one else. So treasure it. If you do that over the next 21 days, and you hunger God, and you seek God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, guess what God will do? He will meet you because His Word says He will. He will meet you. meet with God follow the example of Jesus I want to say one last thing because this is important the prayer and the fasting that I'm talking about this morning and I've talked about last week and other times is only for the follower of Jesus Christ now I understand that people pray and fast all over the world that aren't Christian I know in just a few months, Muslims all over the world are going to pray and they're going to fast for 40 days, a time called Ramadan. And five times a day, they get on their face before God and they pray as they fast throughout the day. Listen to me. Anyone who does that apart from Jesus Christ, that prayer is futile because God does not hear it. He only hears His children. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ... The prayer you need to pray is God save me. Because God will hear that prayer and he'll answer it. But that's it. And here's the problem for so many. When I go to a Muslim country, and I go a lot. Most of the people I meet in a Muslim country, do you know why they're Muslim? Just simply because they were born there. That's why they're Muslim. That's why they're Islamic. They were born in a place that Islam is over. The government is Islamic. Their parents were Islamic. Their grandparents were Islamic. They're Muslim because they were born there. You know the problem in the South, in the United States? Do you know why many people are Christian? Because they were born in the South, in the United States. 
And their parents were Christian and their grandparents were Christian and they've been to church all their life and they're no more a follower of Jesus Christ than a rock. They were just born there. They come to church out of habit. They come because of tradition. They come so they can check a box and they feel like me. If they check a box, they're doing what they're supposed to do. If that's you. then this prayer and fast ain't going to work. Because God has called you to a relationship. And to have a relationship with God, there is only one way according to the mouth of Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So maybe this morning you're here and maybe when I was even sharing my salvation experience earlier, you don't have that. Maybe you've walked the aisle of a church. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've done all these things to check a box, but you truly don't have peace with God and you know you don't have peace with God and you know that you are sinful and you need to repent of your sin and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. You know that. So this morning, I want you to do that. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm not going to call you to raise your hand. I'm not going to call you to stand up. I'm not going to call you to do any of those things. I'm just going to ask you to pray. And when I say pray, there is nothing magical. There's nothing special about a prayer. All that prayer is is a way to express your heart. That's it. When I lead a couple in marriage and they say vows to one another do those vows make them married no that's just a way to express their love to one another and their commitment to one another that's the same thing a prayer does between us and god when we call upon the name of the lord jesus christ to save us we pray to express our love and confess him as lord so this morning if you need jesus i'm just gonna ask you to pray so i want everybody to bow their heads Just close your eyes. And if you are here and you need Jesus Christ and you know you need Jesus Christ. and You know he's tapping at your heart. Then you can pray this prayer. Just pray it after me in your heart. Whisper, Lord Jesus. I need you. I am helpless and hopeless without you. Forgive me of my sin. Save me. Lord, I thank you for anyone in this room. That gave their life to you. Lord, I pray that the peace and the joy that they feel now and the burdens that have been lifted from them, Lord, I pray that over the next 21 days as they pray and fast, You would just reveal Yourself to them. And You would flow through them. And Your life would make their life easy and their load light. And Lord, I pray that you would give them rest. Lord, I pray the same thing for the rest of us. Those who know you, maybe for decades we've known you. But Lord, let us find rest in you. 
Lord, take the burdens off of us. Lord, help us to see it's not about the work, it's about you. And Lord, let us find you. Lord, as we seek you, let us find you. So I thank you for what you're going to do. Not only in this church, but in our lives. So Lord, do more than I can ask, or more than I can even think. We just give it to you, Lord. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.